in a, in a series that uh, we're just calling Trust the Process, and uh, I began this series because I heard uh, a basketball player named Joel Embiid was trying to uh, 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 trademark the phrase, and I thought I would use it uh, before it was pay to play, and so, <laughs> and so we're using that phrase, Trust the Process, and we've been walking through the life of uh, David a little bit and having this conversation about how God often uh, explains that there is a plan and then there is a season in between when the plan starts to get revealed and when the plan happens. And that that's a real difficult time. And so uh, this week, uh, I titled the individual message, The Waiting is the Hardest Part. And uh, I've had a Tom Petty song in my head all week uh, because of that. <laughs> and, uh, and I've been uh, having this conversation with the Lord about how the, how the waiting is often the hardest part. And I've always uh, been a great at waiting. No, <laughs> I'm not great at waiting. I think all of us struggle uh, with waiting. I was trying to think about how in different seasons of our lives, waiting is either more or less difficult. I remember when I was 16 years old, I was working at Safeway and our store went on strike. Have any, I don't, you know, don't raise your hands, but maybe you've been on strike before. Um, I was on strike for the first time. I was 16 years old. And for me, the experience was much different at 16 years old, living with my family, on my family's benefits, not necessarily uh, needing this income to survive. That experience was much different than some of my coworkers, who for them were fighting for their families and fighting for their, uh, uh, their medical insurance and income and all of those kinds of things. And I remember being on strike and, and, and having this time when it, we didn't know what was going to happen. And for those of us that were like 16, 17, 18, it was like a party. We'd go to the store and, uh, I don't know if I should say this. There might be kids in here that I influence, but here we go. We would set up obstacle courses in the parking lot and see who could reverse their car through the obstacle course the fastest, right? We were just having the time of our lives because what did it matter to us? If, if Safeway went away, it didn't really matter to me. It was just a job I had while I was in high school. It wasn't my livelihood. But for others... The waiting was very intense and it was stressful and there was hostile striking and there was when people would cross the picket line or go shopping, there was words exchanged and anger would flare up. And we actually had one guy um, who got so angry and so frustrated, he vandalized the store and uh, he, he did something crazy. I think he cut like the Freon to the store and all the product that was cold product. I mean, he ended up in jail. It was a big deal because we respond differently in the waiting and waiting will pull out of you what's in you. It will put a squeeze on you. And it will show us a little bit about what's on the inside of you. And so this incredible uh, story we have in the life of David, he hears early on in his life that he has been anointed for great things. But then there is a 20-year window from the anointing to actually becoming the king. And I don't know about you, but 20 years is a long time to wait for the plan of God to come into focus. And, uh, and 20 years is, uh, is give or take a few years because we're not exactly sure how old he was when he was anointed. He was somewhere between 8 and 15 years, so 15 to 20 years old. But about 20 years, about 20 years he waited for the plan of God. And so the question I'm asking today is when we know that God has a plan for our lives and the timing of those things haven't happened yet, how do we behave in the meantime? How do we stay faithful, loyal? What is it about our heart condition that allows us to uh, achieve all the things God's called us to do in the meantime? Here's our dilemma. We live in a world of almost instant. 
We live in a world of almost instant. There's just about anything available to you almost instantly. If I order something on Amazon Prime and it takes more than two days, I'll lose my mind. I think someone stole it. Something must be wrong. I deserve a free something. Right? We live in a world of almost instant. We get our coffee almost instantly. You know how frustrated I am if my Keurig takes more than five minutes to spit out coffee? You can order your coffee on your phone, and they will hand it to you when you walk into the store now. You don't even have to order it and wait. It'll just be there waiting for you. We have taught ourselves the the art of instant. And here's the problem. God uses waiting to define and develop our character. And we live in a world of almost instant. And so we have a generation who now has underdeveloped character because they have experienced almost instant their entire life. And waiting develops our character. It defines our character. Do you want to know what's really in your heart? Be forced to wait. And see what comes out of you. Drive down Meridian and have someone change lanes in front of you. And then stop at a yellow light so you can't make it. Oh, I'm the only one? (laughs) There it is. There it is. You will find out what's on the inside of you when you're forced to wait. Get in line behind a person with 37 items in the 20 item lane. You will find out what's on the inside of you when you're forced to wait. Waiting is a character developing process. There's a reason why it takes nine months for that baby to come. Because if it came in two weeks, come on now. We need time and we have to, we grow in that process. And here's the thing, underneath the surface, what's really in your heart will come out when you're waiting. We laugh because we all face it. But the Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That the good person brings up goodness out of the goodness stored up in them and the bad person brings up wickedness out of the evil stored up in them. That out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out of you when you're forced to wait? Do you want to know the road rage statistics? It's crazy. It is crazy. I was just reading an article this week down in Oregon. These two truckers got into an argument. They're trying to pass each other. Someone didn't let themselves over. He's in the oncoming traffic lane pointing at someone, and he takes out a whole family. Road rage. Over what? I couldn't go the way I mostly like to go. I might have to drive an extra couple miles and hit the next on-ramp because I didn't get in my lane in time. You want to know what's on the inside out of you, what comes out of you in the waiting. And this has been true for the history of man. Learning develops us. I believe almost instant is poison for our character. It poisons our character. It weakens us. It's like kryptonite for our soul to get everything we want when we want it. It weakens us. It drains us of the strength we need to meet resistance and challenges. So learning to wait develops us. It's important. What are you saying, Pastor Mike? Well, listen, first of all, waiting on God doesn't mean don't do anything, right? 
Let's be very clear about this. When God unveils a plan, starts giving direction into your life, waiting on God does not mean don't do anything. And we can err on this side. And, uh, and I'll just simply say, it is critically important that we stay faithful to the last thing we heard God tell us to do until he gives us clarity on the next thing. And so for some of us, when we're in the waiting, we just unplug and we're like, well, I'm just waiting to see what God will do. And we see time and time and time again in scripture, that is not the plan. Stay faithful to the last thing you know he said to do until he gives clarity in the next thing. It's an absolute lie that God says, don't do anything. But let's talk a little bit about how this works. He says, I believe that God is much more interested in the process than the product. I really believe that God is much more interested in what gets developed in our hearts and in our lives in the process than the end result. The end result is almost always uh, uh, underwhelming compared to what God does to us in the middle and in the process, the character development that's happening in there. And so for time's sake, we're going to dive into the scriptures here. And I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know, we met Hannah a couple of weeks ago. And Hannah had this incredible story of, uh, of faith in God and having a child uh, named Samuel who she dedicates to the work of the Lord. And we met Samuel, who was the last judge and the, the final kind of prophet of Israel. And, and Samuel is on hand when Saul gets anointed king and it's his assignment to anoint Saul. Yet Saul struggles in the waiting process for God. And there's something in his heart that can't lose the will and the, and the, uh, and the adoration of the people and because of that, he manhandles the vision, and that was last week. And, and oftentimes when we're in the waiting, one of the dangers is we just try to get our hands on it and force it to work and, and bend it to our own will, not God's will. And that was kind of last week. You can catch up on that. And so because of that, uh, Samuel is actually brokenhearted, the scripture tells us. He's, he's, he's discouraged and emotionally kind of spent because he's deeply invested in Saul. He wants Saul to succeed, yet he sees this heart condition in him that is kryptonite. And because of that, the Lord says, I have to take away the blessing, the provision I was going to give to Saul and his family and find someone who has the right heart. And then he assigns Samuel to go to a, a family in Bethlehem. Now, you got to recognize Bethlehem was like just a, a little slum town, about seven miles away from the big city. It's just out in the sticks. There wasn't much to do with Bethlehem. Bethlehem's never a significant site of any very impactful uh, moments military-wise or any of those kinds of things, except for maybe the Christmas story, right? But, but, but why is it a big deal? Because it's a little town of Bethlehem. It's not a significant place. And so he sends uh, Samuel to this place in Bethlehem, kind of the slums, lower income people, not a lot of uh, 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 very significant news or moments happening from Bethlehem. And he sends him to this family and he assigns him to Jesse and he says, you're gonna, in the house of Jesse, find the person who's going to be the next king who has the right heart. And we covered this at the closing of last week. All of the sons of Jesse come before him and none of them are the one. Some of them are good looking. Some of them are tall. Some of them are military aged. And they look like they could be the person that God assigned. And God said, you're looking at the outside, but I'm looking at the what? The heart. And he says, isn't there any more? And he goes, well, there's one. And he's out with the sheep. And they bring in David. And he's young. And he's somewhere between 8 and 15 years old. And he's been out tending the sheep. And, and even in his family, he doesn't have a place of significance. And God says, that's the one. And in 1 Samuel 16, 13, we pick up the story. And it says, so Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. 
Samuel then went to Ramah. So Samuel flees and he kind of hides out from Saul because he knows Saul is going to be disappointed to hear that he's anointed somebody else. So David has this crazy encounter, this moment. He's just working for the fam- on the family farm, basically, right? He's out tending the sheep. He does not have a position of significance. He shows up, and the prophet of God is there, and he's like, all right, boom, cracks the horn. Here's the oil, dumps it on him, and he's like, I'm out. What, is the, what does that mean in your life? Here's this immediate, someone just came over and spoke. There's a destiny over your life. There's a plan of your life. God's gonna do something epic in your life. There's something happening here. He doesn't even clearly say, I'm anointing you to be the next king. He doesn't even have clear direction of exactly what that means. Now, the last person that was anointed got, was for, to be the king. But for the prophet to come and anoint you could mean different things. And so here's this young man of low position who's just out serving And suddenly he's been identified. There's a heart condition in you that's something that the Lord can work with. And here's an anointing. And on top of that anointing, here's the presence of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what God's called you to do. Here's partnership with the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, things start moving and shaking. It says, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Whoo, there's so much there. We can spend a lot of time on this. Here's what I want you to catch. The spirit of the Lord had departed from him and evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. In these days before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit would show up and uh, empower and anoint multiple people in different places throughout history and time and empower and anoint them to do the work of God. But something in Saul's heart condition had rejected the heart and the will of God. So the Holy Spirit said, I can't empower you any longer for this mission because you're not staying on mission. And it says, then an evil spirit, something that was contrary to the will of God, took residence there and tormented him. We see this a lot of time in leaders. When their heart turns from God, when they're in love with the adoration of the people over the will or the plan of God, or when they're just so committed to winning that they surrender their ethics. You know people who had great character and ethics and then got into a position of leadership and suddenly compromised to stay there, fudged the numbers, were a little bit dishonest, didn't have the real story, didn't tell you the truth, kind of hid behind the authority of their position. And this is the picture we have of Saul. He's in authority, he's in position, but compromise has gotten in. And there's a, <clears throat> a spiritual battle, a, uh, maybe a psychological battle. Something's happening in him. And matter of fact, it's happening so clearly that verse 15 says, his attendant said to him, uh, see an evil spirit is tormenting you. It was visible from the outside. It was visible to people who were around. You're not the same dude you used to be. You used to operate under this authority that, that this Holy Spirit that used to kind of guide and direct you. Now you're full of compromise and deceit and you're just power hungry and, and it's coming out, you're erratic. Verse 16, it says, so our Lord commanded us, let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He'll play when the evil spirit comes and you'll feel better. He says, let's get you some like some yo-yo ma, chill you out. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring them to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse in Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. 
He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. See, already the presence and authority of the Holy Spirit has been on display in David's behavior. And something's different about him now. People are noticing. They can see what's on the inside, and David's worship has gotten people's attention. I wonder what people see when they see you. Hmm. I wonder if what's coming out of you. Anyways. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who's with the sheep. See, David has been anointed. He's got the authority of the Holy Spirit, but he's still doing the youngest kid's job. He's still just in position in his family doing the, the old job with the new anointing, waiting for the next season. He says, send him to me. He says, so Jesse, that's his pops, took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and they sent him with his son David to Saul. So dad packs him a lunch and says, the king wants to see you. Go play for the king. David came to Saul and entered his service. Listen to this. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. An armor bearer was a powerful role in the life of especially a king. That's someone who guarded your backside, who protected you, didn't carry a weapon, but was willing to dive in front and protect you. David receives an immediate promotion. And there's favor that comes when you're faithful to what God's entrusted you in the meantime. He's been faithfully tending sheep, playing his harp, lyre, whatever, worshiping God. He meets uh, people who recognize that he has authority in him, that he's godly, that he loves the Lord. There's a crisis. The king's out of control. And they say, what about this guy? What about the character that's been on display? Even though he's just a lowly shepherd from Bethlehem, let's bring him in. And the moment the king meets him, he's like, whoa, there's something here that's solid. You can guard my backside. So Saul sent word to Jesse, and he's like, allow David to remain in my service, for I'm pleased with him. Think about how cool that must have been for David. He gets anointed. We don't know exactly how much time has gone by. He's still tending sheep, and he gets promoted, not because he actively sought promotion, but it's because he actively served God faithfully in his current role. It's interesting. Verse 23, whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and he would play and then relief would come to Saul and he'd feel better and the spirit would leave him. The evil spirit would leave him. So we have this crazy picture of David and he's playing and he's waiting. He sees the dark side of the king, but he's still serving him. And then we fast forward and you turn the page and we see in the next chapter, we see one of these epic moments in scripture that everybody is familiar with. There's a giant who is threatening all of Israel. The Philistines have taken up camp and they're threatening to attack. They have these two military positions and there's a valley between them and no one wants to give up the high ground and fight in the valley. So they're trying to mock each other and trying to draw each other into a bad position. They're trying to stand up and say, you're too scared, you're too chicken to come fight us. And they know that if you surrender to that emotional uh, reaction and you take the low ground, you're toast. You have no chance. And so we meet Goliath. This giant of a man who the scripture says was approximately eight to nine feet tall. Carried about 150 pounds of armor. He had bronze metal uh, in, in an age that would have put him uh, clearly militarily at an advantage with just the, the technology. The Philistines were the only one that were operating in these type of weapons and weaponry. He's like a living tank. And he gets up in front of the people of uh, the army of Israel and he says, he says, basically, you guys are chicken. Isn't there anyone who's man enough to come down? Why don't we just fight mano on mano and whoever wins, the other army will just surrender. 
That way no one has to take the low ground. That's how he starts challenging. And so in chapter 17, we fast forward about verse 12, and we see David has had some time period between this playing the harp for, uh, for Saul and now. The, the military is formed, so David's probably been dismissed from service in this season. And it says, now David was a son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. And Jesse had eight sons on Saul's time, uh, and he was now old. So Jesse's not at the battle. He's too old, but some of his sons are there. They've been brought into the military. And it says, verse 13, Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second was Abinadab, and the third was Shema. David was the youngest, but the three oldest that followed Saul. But listen to this verse 15. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. I don't want you to get a picture of this. He was serving at the lowest level. He gets anointed to the highest level. He still has to serve at the lowest level. Then he gets promoted as a worship leader into the presence of the king. Then he gets promoted to armor bearer, and he's still serving. But the scripture tell us at the same time, he's still the lowest in his father's house. So he's got responsibilities to go back and keep tending the sheep. He's got to make a seven mile journey back to Bethlehem and make sure the sheep are okay. Can you imagine all of these areas of responsibility, how insignificant it must have felt to leave the palace as an armor bearer for the king who you're the one who plays when the king freaks out and the king is pleased with you to go back to your dad's house where you're the seventh son and now you're out in the fields watching the sheep again. This is David's life. What a tension to experience. It says, for 40 days, the Philistines came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. So every, every day for 40 days, Goliath would walk out. He'd stand before this valley and he'd say, hey, you chickens, is there anyone man enough to fight me? Trying to tempt the, the armies of God and they're cowering before him. It says, uh, it says, now Jesse and his son, David. Okay. So that's what's going on. So now Jesse told his son, David, you're coming back and forth. Why don't you bring lunch? He takes this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp and take these cheeses to the commander of their units and see how your brothers are doing and bring back me some, some assurances from them. He's like, hey, since you're running back and forth, I know you play for the king and you're an armor bearer or whatever, but can you also bring lunch to your brothers? Verse 19. He says, there was Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. And so early in the morning, David left the flock. He's back in the shepherd boy. In the care of the shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed, and he reached the camp as the army was going to its battle position, shouting the war cry. So the army would get up every morning, and they'd be like, we're awesome, hoorah! They'd get out there, and they're like, battle cry, battle cry, battle cry. Then they'd see Goliath, and Goliath is like, you guys are weak. And they're like, yeah. And then they would drop out. This is the picture of what we see, right? <laughs> it says, so David left his things. Oh, it says, it says uh, where am I at? Uh, shouting their war cry, verse 21. So it says, Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines. They're facing each other. It's like the sharks and the jets. They're like, yeah. right? David left his things with the keeper of the supplies and he ran to the battle lines and he asked his brothers how they were. This is what his dad asked him to do. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out and he shouted his usual defiance and David heard it. And it says, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. They're like, we're tough, we're tough, we're tough. We're not as tough as that guy. We're out. This is their routine. For 40 days, this is going on. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He keeps coming out to defy Israel, and the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give his daughter in marriage and exempt his family from taxes in Israel. That's a good deal, guys. 
You get married into the royal family wealth and no taxes for life. I've never heard of that deal. David asked the men standing near him, so what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what had been saying and what they'd been told to him, that this is for the man who, this will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, the oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger against him and said, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness, right? It's always a big brother who's trying to say, why are you doing the little thing that I told you to do, I left for you? Who, why, why are you trying to step out and actually do something great. He goes, who did you leave those sheep with in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Here's what we know is true about David for sure. He was chosen because of his what? Isn't it true the enemy will always poke at your strength, try to convince you that that's a lie, that you're not as strong as you are? Some of you got great faith in this room. The enemy's always trying to say, you don't have faith. Your faith is nothing. Some of you got great character, and the enemy says, you're, you're going to compromise your character. Some of you have great skill. Whatever it is the Lord's anointed you with, gifted you with, brought into you, there's always going to be the attack of the enemy right in the heart of your strength to try to steal the strength away from you. He goes right after David's heart. David's like, now what have I done? Can I even speak? This is little brother talk. It's beautiful. He turned away to someone else and he brought up the same matter and the men answered him as before. And when David said, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Servant leadership from the very beginning. And Saul replied, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You're just a young man and he's been a warrior from his youth. He's like, listen, you're a sheep tender and a musician. This is an eight-foot giant of a man and a soldier. You've got no chance. But David said, your servant has been keeping the father's sheep. Listen to this. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from his mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, and I struck it, and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, okay, go, and the Lord be with you. I'm gonna stop there. I just want you to catch this heart. David, no one knew what he had been doing while he was out tending the sheep. No one knew that this courageous heart was in him that this confident belief that God could do anything was with him. No one knew that this shepherd boy musician was actually training in the midst of his mediocre season of preparation. When the waiting was going on, God was testing and developing his character and he was using bears, he was using lions, he was using other things to see what was on the inside of David so that could start to come out on the outside. Because David might not have known what was on the inside of him yet. Just like you don't know what's on the inside of you yet. So let me just say this. If God has a plan for your life and a destiny for you, then you'd better be prepared to face some lions and some bears. Yeah, we get so frustrated when things aren't working out. When things aren't happening in the timing we want them to happen to. When things, what, what, look at this resistance that I'm facing. And God said, yeah, that resistance is developing and squeezing out of you the character that's going to be critical because you don't know on the other side of this is a Goliath and he's going to go down because of what the work you put in in this time. Yeah, but I'm just tending sheep. This doesn't seem important. 
I mean, God put a dream in me, and I was gonna, I was gonna start a ministry, or I was gonna start this business, or I was gonna write this novel, or I was gonna lead this thing, and now I'm still stuck here, and I'm just vacuuming, and I'm just taking the trash out, and I'm just greeting, and I want to be like, and God's like, no, no, no. In those seasons, in those places, you're fighting lions. You're fighting bears, and they're giving you confidence and developing character and bringing out strength that you didn't even know that you had, and you wouldn't know you had it if you weren't faithful in this season. See, David the king, who we're going to meet soon, he didn't start out as a king. He was a product of David the shepherd. Without David the shepherd, you never have David the king. He was a product of David the shepherd. He learned how to fight. He learned how to serve. He learned how to, how to be a servant leader and, and allow. He took heat from his brothers and criticism. He took all of that on and it developed him. He learned how to serve in that role. David the king was also a product of David the courier. Dad said, I need you to bring lunch. I need you to send messages. I need you to be faithful and still serve on things that are beneath the person who's been anointed and now sits in the king's private quarters playing for him. Do you still have a heart to serve? Is that still being developed in you? He was also the product of David, the court musician. Learning to take his talents and his gifts and give his strength away in order to help and benefit someone who was clearly wicked at this point. But he understood his role and he was faithful to serve. In the midst of that, he was also the product of David the armor bearer. Who was able to guard the backside of the king and protect the king, even though he knew he was going to be king someday. How nice would it have been for him to just uh, drop the, the ball on being an armor bearer and let Saul get taken out? Would have solved all his problems. Except for would have developed in him the same heart that Saul had. That said, I'm going to manhandle the vision. I don't trust that God's going to do it in his timing. I got to get my own hands on there and make this thing happen. Without that armor bearer season, you don't get David the king. And so here's what I want to leave you with this morning. I want you to be who God called you to be, no matter what your current assignment is. I don't know what your current assignment is. I don't know what your current job situation, I mean, I may, I may know, but, 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 but I don't know what your current role is, your current family structure, your current set of relationships, the current thing you're walking through. But here's what I do know, whoever God called you to be, be that person in this role right now. Well, Pastor Mike, this isn't the dream role. I'm waiting for this other thing to open and I'm waiting for this and I'm frustrated about this. Yeah, I hear you. And in the midst of this waiting season, let God work on your heart. Don't get furious when a lion or a bear comes in and you gotta deal with it. Recognize that God assigned those things into your circle so that you can develop the strength and the character. Instant success is not going to be sustainable. The process matters. God develops us and grows us in the process. David made a series of decisions that determined his destiny. He made a series of decisions that determined his destiny. It wasn't just one off. He made a decision. I'm going to keep worshiping. I'm going to keep serving. I'm going to keep tending the sheep. Saul needs me to play. I'm going to play. I'm going to play so well that he trusts me and I'm going to become his armor bearer. Dad needs me to come back and tend the sheep. I'll tend the sheep. Dad needs me to go back and forth and be the errand boy. I'll be that guy. Then he hears Goliath and he says, I don't have to tolerate that. I'll be this guy. And then all of a sudden people say, well, you're in a wicked, jealous heart. You're trying to promote yourself. He says, I'm not trying to promote myself. This guy's mocking my God. If I can serve that way, I'll serve that way. I'm here to serve. He made a series of 
decisions. Saul lost his destiny based on his decisions. He lost the plan that God had for his family and his, based on his decisions. He couldn't wait. He had to manhandle it. He couldn't serve. He needed the adoration now. And it comp- that compromise cost him everything. I heard a, actually read this author by the name of Rob Brendel. And he said it this way. He said, we never arrive at our calling. We only live into it. It's not just a place we suddenly show up. The journey is the calling. It develops us. It creates us. If God took you and transplanted you into the conclusion, you wouldn't be ready for it. You need the process. You need to live into the process. It matters. It develops you. It strengthens you. And it gives you all the things you need to be successful at the end. God's always more concerned about the process. It helps us. It grows us. It sharpens us. It develops us. And that's how we live in the meantime. That's how we do it. So Jesus, I recognize. I recognize that it's hard in our own personal lives, in the life of our church, to understand what you're doing in the end game while we're stuck in the meantime. But I also recognize that you move in the process, that we're fighting bears and lions right now because you're developing strength and tenacity and courage and faith and teaching us dependence on you. And I recognize that it's easy to want to shortcut the process. It's easy to want to jump to the end We'll read the last few pages of the book or read the spoilers or whatever, not recognizing that the beauty and the life that gets developed in the journey is so important. It's the whole thing. You want us to live into it. And I thank you for that. I thank you for taking us through that process. I pray you give us courage to walk through it. I pray for some of us that have been trying to shortcut the process. Would you give us understanding and humility and faith to trust you. And would you show up and give us favor? I think about this crazy picture of two men, both having a season of the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit, yet one being submitted and surrendered to your will, and the other wanting to capitalize on it to get their will done. I just pray, God, we'd be submitted and surrendered and faithful I pray for dreams that are in here that have been taking a long time. Maybe dreams for for families, dreams for careers, dreams for ministries. And it feels like it's been taking a long time. And and it would be easy for the enemy to come in and say, see, see you're not, you don't have the faith you think you did. You don't have the heart you think you did. You don't have the skill you think you did. You don't have the whatever it is to try to chip away at, at, at God, the thing you're building in us. It'd be easy for us to listen to that and believe that lie. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you would guard our hearts. You would give us the heart that David had here that's surrendered and submitted, that's filled with faith and courage. I pray you'd reignite dreams. God, dreams that have been taken 20 years. Okay. Okay. We trust you. We believe in you. And we recognize that the work you want to do in us is just as important as the work you want to do through us. So we submit to the process. Shape us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.